As we turn in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, if you're not used to using a Bible with us, these black Bibles that are around you, Hebrews chapter 12 can be found on page 1008, and if I refer to the chapter, it's the big number, and then the verses are the smaller numbers after it. I'd like us to begin with a word of prayer. If You wouldn't mind, I'm used to us meeting before and getting a lot of praying in, and so we've confessed our sins and we've sang some songs to praise God. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon us in our world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the cry of our hearts this morning. Collectively, together, we as a people, we want to see the name of Jesus Christ made much of, hallowed, honored, revered. So we pray this for Embassy Church this morning, that each and every one of us, regardless of what circumstances that are in our lives this morning, that we will honor Jesus Christ, whether it's in our sickness or in our health, whether it's in our poverty or in our riches, whether it's in our good times or our bad. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength and the Holy Spirit to sanctify us to honor Christ today. Father, we pray that not just for Embassy Church, we pray this for Bethel Church that's meeting upstairs now. We pray this for Mount Prospect Bible Church that just met here before us. Gulf Road Baptist right down the street. Father, there are so many congregations of people that you have called together and we're thankful for the great diversity of them. And we pray, God, for your blessing upon them. Bless their pastors, their church leaders, their members, and may they increase and grow not only in love for you, but in their numbers, and more and more people in this community and area would come to know the wonderful grace of Jesus. Father, we want to pray for the spreading of the gospel around the nations. Lord, we love the way that the gospel is not just for a certain ethnic people group, but is for all tribes, tongues, and languages. It is the universal message of hope for everyone. So we ask, God, that you would raise up laborers across this room and across the world who will be burdened by the message of Christ and send it to the nations that have yet to hear it. God, we pray and ask that you might even do that this morning, that the race that we might run might lead us to a different home and a different place and a different land learning a new language, and sharing the good news of Christ in it. God, I pray that we would be receptive to that call. Lord, we want to also pray for our government leaders, those officials and men and women who are in charge of the structures that you have put in place. Your word commands us that we should pray for the good of our land and for the prosperity of it through these men and women. We pray for Rahm Emanuel and the mayor of Chicago, all of the troubles and trials that are facing him today, the police force and the struggles of justice and the abuse of authority. Lord, I pray that you would give these men and women that are in authority wisdom, that you would give them wisdom to know what to do and how to do it rightly. I pray that you'd give us as people the wisdom to elect and appoint the officials that should be in those places. And God, we pray that if there is injustice, that you would remove these men and women from those positions. God, we want to see this community, this city, this land filled with peace and righteousness and not war and destruction and injustice. So, Father, we pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we're in Hebrews chapter 12, after concluding four to five weeks or so, looking at faith in chapter 11. And for our purposes this morning, it's not as if we've really concluded that study. It's actually one of the worst chapter divisions in all of the Bible. It's quite obvious when you look right at chapter 12, the therefore is referring to everything that has just been said in chapter 11. And so we're going to look at this conclusion then of this idea and this study of faith that we've seen in chapter 11 so far. And we're going to see a, a couple different metaphors, but the prevailing metaphor is an athletic one, one that I'm very fond of, being an athlete myself all through high school and college and running and track and field. We're going to see this morning that the Christian life is compared to a race. And so I want us to first look at the reality of the race, and then I want us to second look at the rules of the race. So if you're taking notes or you just want to kind of track where we're at, first we're going to look at the reality of the race. And then second, we're going to look at the rules for how to run this race well. So let's look at our passage together and see the reality of this race. Starting in chapter 12, verse 1, the scripture reads as follows. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the, his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So from this passage of Scripture, we're going to see the reality of the race and the rules of the race. The word race comes up right there in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We know right from the start, just by looking at the the nature of this word, agoni, it sounds very familiar to a harsh word of agony. It's where we get the word agony from, this same root. And so right from the start, we need to realize the reality of this race that is set before us is an agonizing, difficult race. The race could be specifically referred to here because the word choice, not just as a reference to an agonizing race, but rather a specific race in the Olympics, the pentathlon, a five-event match 
that had running and swimming, jumping, and all kinds of different things, and it ended with a boxing match. So I want you to imagine the scene in a few months, later in 2016 in the summer, the Olympics, and we bring back the pentathlon. And imagine a guy like Michael Phelps running and swimming, and then after all of that, after he's exhausted himself, he gets into the boxing match and fights. He would wear leather gloves and protect his hands, but then the leather would then disfigure the face of its opponents. You see, the picture, if this is in fact the metaphor that he's bringing up by using this word agoni, the pentathlon, that's a grueling race. Just one leg of the race would be difficult in and of itself, but five legs, five different components, using every kind of muscle or athletic ability that the athlete had. So we see right from the very word race, a picture of its difficulty. But notice also that this race, there's weights that can slow us down. Let us also lay aside weights. And then secondly, we see that there's sins that can trip us up or cling. The word here is actually an obstacle that is in front of us. Think on the track, a hurdle to jump over. So you have weights that can slow you down. You have hurdles that can trip you up if you do not run around them or over them. There's sin from within. It says in verse 1 that there's sin. That's the hurdles that cling so closely and trips us. But then look at verse in the struggle against sin. Here it doesn't seem like he's talking about the struggle of your internal sin. The struggle of the external sin of this world and your struggle against the sin and evil of this world. Have you suffered to the point of death? The answer is no. But contrast that with verse 3, the one who did endure sin from outside, who suffered sin from opposition to the point of death. So there's sin from within, there's sin from without, there's things that slow us down, there's things that trip us up, there's oppositions against us. And finally, we see that we're told to endure this race. Run this race with endurance in verse 1. It's because it's a long race, it's not a short race. Are you in for the long haul? I was thinking about this concept of a long, hard race. Former pastor Mark Dever would often say to a church whose average members at Capitol Hill Baptist Church was around the age of 30, so he regularly appealed to young people, and he would say, young people, which was most of the church, most of you are overestimating what you can accomplish in one year, because you're young and you're proud, but you are underestimating what you can accomplish in 20 years. For those of you who are older, you can probably tell us at lunch today how true those words are. Remind us that with a long race, there's much that we can accomplish. So, friends, do you have in your mind a long race? The Christian life is not a short sprint. Or are you looking for a shortcut? Now, it seems obvious that in verse 4, that in your struggles against sin, you have not resisted to the shedding of blood. And in verse 3, he tells us that we should Consider Jesus so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. And then all the way down in verse 12, you see that they have drooping hands. They look exhausted. Their, Their knees are weak. They need strengthening in their knees. They're fatigued. Are you looking for a shortcut? Do you want to work around and not actually run this race? Thinking about that idea has reminded me of a story of Rosie Ruse. 
Ruiz, I think is her name, Rosie Ruiz. Anybody know who Rosie Ruiz is, the famous marathon runner? Half of you know, a couple nods, one hand raised. Well, let me tell you, Rosie Ruiz was a Cuban-American woman who won the 84th Boston Marathon in 1980. She finished with a time of 2 hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds. Her time was the fastest female time broke the Boston Marathon record. In addition to that, it was the third fastest time of any woman ever in any marathon of all time. Pretty famous lady, right? When you run like that. But in fact, that's not why she's so famous. Not because she's a fast runner, but because her title was stripped eight days after the race. Now, why is that? Why did Rosie get her title stripped? Well, because as she finished the race, people started noticing some strange things. Something was wrong. For example, the men's winner who just won, Bill Rogers, said he was started to talk to Rosie. And as they talked, she couldn't remember anything that any normal runner would have remembered, like her intervals or her splits or different parts of the race and which parts were hard or easy. Others noticed that she wasn't even panting. She wasn't that sweaty. Her thighs were a little bit flabbier than most runners. For you know, a world-class runner, you'd imagine she'd be quite thin. She was not super thin, not that she was overweight or obese, but it just didn't make sense. Even a stress test later showed that her resting heart rate was above 70 when most runners would have been in the 50s. On and on, the details, something's not matching up. How could this woman, of all women, have broken the record of the Boston Marathon and improved her New York Marathon time by 26 minutes within the same calendar year? Now, friends, I, I have done some running. I haven't done any marathons, but you marathon runners will know. 26 minutes to improve your time that much within the one calendar year? This is impossible. What was the answer? How could this woman have done this? Well, it's simple. She cheated. As controversy was swirling around as the days that followed, a, a photographer came out and came to the race officials and said that Rosie was on the subway train next to her. She told the photograph that she was an injured runner and was being taken to the first aid department over at the end of the finish line. But instead of going to first aid after she said goodbye to this photographer, she busted through where a bunch of people saw her breaking through a crowd of spectators about a half a mile from the finish line and won in record time. Is that how any of you feel this morning? Man, this life, this Christian life is hard and challenging. Let's just hop on the subway and cheat. Friends, if you're not covered in sweat, if you're not panting, if you're not feeling the difficulty of this long, arduous race, then it could be that you're not running it. We need to realize the reality of the Christian race. If you're not exhausted, then maybe you're not in the race. It's a long, hard race. Or have you been told the lies that the Christian life was supposed to be easy once you follow Jesus? Come to Jesus, cast all your burdens down, and there will be no more burdens ever, ever again. I don't think that's the way the passage goes. Do you realize that the same Jesus who says that your burdens lay them down at my feet, he also says, come and die and follow me and take up your cross. See, whether it's prosperity teaching or maybe even furthermore for most of us, the watered-down gospel 
of many churches of today. They tell us to come run our race, but if you get tired, you know, just hop on the subway. There's ways around cutting corners. So friends, I ask you, if you've shared the gospel with someone, is there any sense to which you're asking them to come and die to their self? To give up all and follow Jesus Christ? Are we telling them like Jesus did to take up their cross? You know, there was a pastor in Chicago named A.W. Tozer. He's written a lot of different things, some of which are excellent, some of which are a bit controversial. But the point is, is at one point in his ministry, he said that during his day, there had become an undetected and almost unannounced new gospel. He said it had become popular. It's, it's like the old cross of Jesus, but it's different. It's superficial on the outside, but on the inside, the differences are fundamental. The way that churches today are employing the language of the cross is the same as the old, but the content and substance of it is not the same. This cross, in the new way of doing evangelism, does not slay a sinner. It just redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner, jollier way of living and saves him from his self-respect. For example, it says to the self-assertive, come, assert yourself for Jesus. It'll say to the thrill-seeker, come, enjoy the thrills of the Christian life. And the idea behind this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being a false gospel. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. Friends, the cross is a symbol of death, Tozer says. It stands for the abrupt and the violent end of a person. God saves an individual first by liquidating him and then raising him to new life. As Jesus did say, the corn of wheat must first fall into the ground and die. Only then will God bring new life from the corn of wheat. Whoever wants this new life must then be placed under the rod of God and hate his sin, agree with his just sentence against God. And How this teaching then brings life is that when we tell people to repent and believe, they must allow God to kill their sin, die to their self, and then new life can come flowing through us. So let no sin be covered and hidden. Let no sin be defended or excused. Do not allow them to make terms with God. Instead, as we share the gospel, lead them to bow their heads before the stroke of God's stern displeasure and acknowledge themselves worthy to die. See how marked difference there is between what Tozer is saying and this idea that come, follow Jesus, everything will be happy and cheery and fuzzy? I'd encourage us as we think about the Christian life and as we invite people to run this race with us, that we be honest and tell them the realities of this race. It's hard, it's difficult, and you've got to die. Die to your sin and die to yourself. But this death does not lead in just death. It leads to new life. So there is joy and hope at the end of that disheartening message. But that's the reality of the race, friends. If it's so difficult, then we need to know how to run it. And I'm going to give us four rules. So hopefully we'll be practical and helpful this morning. Four rules for how to run this race well. The first and most obvious rule would be to pace yourself. If it's a long, hard race, well then don't see it as a sprint. See it as a marathon. You know, one of our elders, Ryan Fellow, 
He told me a story recently about how he got confused in a track and field event during high school that he was always a sprinter, so he would run the short distance races, and that because he was coerced by the sweetness of the girl sitting next to him on the school bus, when the track and field coach said, hey, we need someone to help us run in the two-mile relay, the girl next to him said, oh, man, I hope somebody volunteers for that. And he was so smitten by her that he said, oh, I'll run it, not knowing that a two-mile relay would mean he'd have to run an 800-meter run, something he was never accustomed to doing. So Ryan just figured, yeah, I'll run the relay, not knowing that he'd have to run two laps around the track instead of just one straight away. And so he started off as normal, like he always did in every sprint, sprinting race. Started with that baton and ran and ran and ran as fast as he could. He was cheering. The, the crowd was going crazy. Ryan is killing it. Man, who knew he was so fast? But little did he know there was another lap to go. So as this huge lead that Ryan had got, everybody started passing him. And before he knew it, he had like an asthma attack and he fell over and couldn't even finish. Really? True story. Ask him later for lunch to verify the details or make them more clear. Friends, what a helpful illustration for us. This is not a, a sprint. Expectations are everything. Most of the pain in your life is not because of the actual pain in your life. It's because your expectations were so off. And now you're so disappointed and frustrated and upset with God or the other people around you. Get your expectations correct. See the race as it truly is and pace yourself for the long haul that is in front of us. Secondly, we're told in this passage to lay aside two things. In chapter 12, verse 1, let us lay aside every weight and let us lay aside every sin that clings closely to us. That phrase led me to preach the first ever sermon I've ever preached in my entire life. I think it was almost, I don't know, 10 years ago from now. I was serving as a youth pastor at a church in south of Chicago in Kankakee, Illinois area. And as I was there, the senior pastor asked me to preach for my first ever time. He said I could pick whatever passage I wanted, and I was meditating on this truth right here. Let us lay aside every weight and sin, meaning that there's difference between the weight that slows us down and the sin that trips us up. And as I meditated and preached this message, and I actually looked back earlier this week to see how good the sermon was, I was realizing, yeah, we won't preach that one again. But I think there was still one good point that was made. It's not so much about the rules that you're supposed to keep in order like what sin is right or, or what sin is, 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 am I supposed to do this or don't do this? This is a lot of times the way Christians think about how they're to run the race. It's all about, well, do these things and, and don't do these things. And, oh, how far is too far? Can I, can I get a little too close here? Okay, that's the line. Okay. Those are all the wrong questions. The questions we should be asking, according to this passage, is does the thing help me run? Do you see the difference here? Because there's some things that are not sin, and you, in your Christian freedom, could do them, 
but they will slow you down. Weights. The image here is actually one of a man who's training for the race and puts on a, a vest or maybe they put ankle weights or weights on their arms. You ever see those power walkers and they got their weights on? Well, if you're going to run the race, you don't wear suits. You don't wear heavy clothes. You gird up your loins in the Old Testament times. You wear short shorts, the runners. That was the worst part about running track and field. I was a basketball player, and we got shorts down past our knees, and then at track and field time, you feel so exposed and half naked. I mean, there's this idea, like, you want to wear almost nothing. And actually, I was reading one commentary that said back in these days, they would wear nothing. They would just be naked. It's because the idea is you want to strip away anything that would slow you down. But that's a different idea from the sin that will make you fall on your face. You see the picture here? He wants you to run well. And some things might be things that are just slowing you down, even though you're allowed to do them. So stop asking the question, well, I'm, I'm allowed to do it, so I'm going to do it. No, no, does it help you run? Ask the better question this morning. Alcohol, you're allowed to drink alcohol. Does it help you run? Run well in front of the people that you're drinking alcohol in front of. There's no scripture that forbids the consumption of alcohol. It's actually commanded in the Lord's Supper practice. So here at Embassy Church, we don't have a stance that like, no alcohol drinking. But on and on we could go. There's, there's a lot of examples of things that you could use as like, okay, is this thing helpful or is it unhelpful? And that's a big reason why we have a church and a community of people together so that you can have conversations around tables like at lunch or throughout the week where you can talk about, hey, do you think this is helping me run? Can you give me some advice and some counsel? That's what discipleship is largely about, helping to see the difference between the sins that trip us up. A lot of you know the sins that are tripping you up. But are you aware of the weights that are slowing you down? So the first rule was to pace ourselves. The second rule was to lay aside both the weight and the sin and think thoroughly about how we can run this race well. Thirdly, you need to remember three important things about this race. So thirdly, you need to remember three important things about this race. The, it's kind of the mindset for how you think about the race that we're running. First thing you need to remember is that when you are getting weak, then you're getting strong. The paradox of this race. Remember the paradox of the Christian race. The weaker you are feeling, the stronger you are getting. Friends, this is an obvious truth that you see here in this scripture. Look at verse 11 of chapter 12. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that word train kind of encapsulates this whole metaphor of exercise and running and athletics because it's the word gymnasio, you know, for gymnasium. So here you have the picture of somebody that's being trained by the difficulties of the race and the discipline that God allows to teach us through. So think about it for a second. I don't know if any of you have done any weightlifting or running, but if I'm doing some, some curls to, to get this bicep huge, you know, they're not that big. But, but if, if I were to be doing some curls, the more that I do, the weaker I would feel, right? 
Like after a while, my arm's going to feel like spaghetti, and it's just like, whoa, I can't even lift my Bible. Like everything is so heavy. If you're working out and you get to that place, then you're doing the right thing. You're tearing the muscle apart so that it can be built up again and be stronger. That's how it works, and it's so much this is what he's saying here. That as you run this race, it's going to be extremely challenging, and that's a good thing because you will be so much stronger. One of the other weird paradoxes that I was thinking about this is that a lot of times we train before we compete, but here, as we're running the race, we're being trained. And as we go through those trials and get stronger, we can then run and endure longer. So that's one thing to remember of the three. Remember that when you are getting weak, you are actually getting stronger. Let me sum it up this way. I don't know if you know this, the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord, is laid up for you in his excellent word, that, that hymn. It's a wonderful hymn. It goes like this in the verse 2. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow for I will be with you in trouble to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials all your pathways shall lie, my grace is all sufficient and shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. What a poetic way to say, look, God in his mercy makes us weak, disciplines us so we get stronger. Second thing to remember, you are a child as you run this race. You're a child. This is what's being made point here in verse 5, and this is why I'm saying, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, as daughters, as children? Do not forget. So as you run this race, one of the rules is you can't forget you're a child. Do you realize that this morning? That as you run the race of the Christian life, that you're a child who will not always understand the discipline and the trials and the struggles of the race. If you haven't had the opportunity or privilege of disciplining a child, or if you can't remember what it was like, let me be the first to remind you that I can talk as much as I want my kids do not understand why I'm doing what I'm doing when I discipline them. All they know is, I want ice cream. And you said, I can't have ice cream. And it's very painful right now that you're telling me I can't have ice cream. Now, I could have been doing it because they did something wrong, like disrespected their mother and said, I hate this dinner and threw it on the ground. And so, okay, you're not having ice cream. Or it could be because they've been eating so much stuff and I'm just watching out for the well-being of the child. Both ideas are wrapped up in this word paideia, which is the word you see discipline in this passage. Paideia doesn't just mean corporal punishment, you know, spankings and beating your children and whatever else. The idea of paideia is that you have a whole well-being for the child. And because you care about them, you will both instruct and discipline all together. But it doesn't matter what I'm doing, whether I'm telling them you can't have ice cream because of some sin or disrespect, or if it's because of some sort of just general care for them. 
because I love them. And I don't want them to just eat and eat ice cream all the time. So kids, listen up here. If your mom and dad discipline you, it's because they love you. I know it doesn't make any sense. Oh, you're not letting me have something that I really want because you love me. That doesn't make any sense to them. And in the same way, friends, we're adults. We need to realize that God treats us the same way as our father. You know, I think one of the helpful things of this passage is that it doesn't just stick with the athletic metaphors all the way through, but it kind of right in the middle of this whole thing says, okay, I've got struggling, hurting people, and if all people think about is God as their coach and run the race, they're not going to run well. They need to remember that God is also their father. Do you know God to be your father? He loves you. He's disciplining you, allowing difficulty and pain and struggle in your life for your good. Look back at verse 11 again. For the moment, all discipline, whether it's from our heavenly father or our earthly father, it all seems painful, not pleasant, but it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And if we're not being disciplined, verse 8 says, we are illegitimate sons. The lack of discipline in our life shows us that God does not love us and therefore God's not our Father. Friends, I hope you can see this morning that if you realize that you're a child, therefore you should humbly look at the circumstances of your life and realize that just because you can't think of a good reason for why this is in your life doesn't mean there isn't one. Say that again. Just because you don't think of a good reason why this trial and suffering is in your life does not mean there isn't a good reason. Humble yourself this morning and realize that you are just a child and that your father knows better and that's why he's disciplining you because he loves you. Third thing that you must remember is that this race is not an individual event. It is a relay. So we remember that when we're weak, we're getting strong. We remember that we're a child but the third thing we have to remember is that it's like a relay race. I get this from the first phrase in here, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And I've thought long and hard about this, and I think the relay race is the best picture for understanding what this is saying. So I used to run in track and field, and one of the events I did run was the relay race. And unlike Ryan, I actually did do the relays and knew what I was doing. (laughs) And in the relay race, you have a baton, there's, there's the first person that goes around and then you hand off the baton and, and I, I did the two-mile relay like I just was sharing with Ryan. So you'd run two times around and then you hand off to the next person. Then they run two times around, hand off to the next person, and there's four times that equals two miles. What I see here in this passage is that in Hebrews chapter 11, you have the first leg of the race with all of these people collectively, as a a unit, as you could say, a great cloud of witnesses. And they've already run their leg of the race. Now, this was the interesting vision I saw as I was thinking about this concept because there's this debate between the scholars of is the witnesses like spectators that are in a stadium because of the athletic imagery of the Olympics and the pentathlon. And so there they are cheering them on. Yo, go, go, go. And so the, the image is we should be encouraged by them cheering us on. Is that the picture, or is the picture that they've already run their race, that they're, they're, they run their race, and that they're witnesses of how to run the race faithfully? And you think about that, and you're like, that actually makes sense with both of those pictures. Because of the athletic imagery of the Olympics and the spectator idea of these witnesses looking on and cheering us, that could be true. 
But it's most without a doubt true that these people that are witnesses, these chapter 11 heroes, they have already run their race and they finished well and we're supposed to see their example and be encouraged by it. So it's as if they've taken their baton, they've handed it to the next person and then now they're off on the side and this is the way it would work when I ran track and field. That these witnesses, these first leg of the race, as they ran around, they hand off their baton, and then now they are the biggest cheerleaders of them all. Sometimes they would even run inside the inside of the track, and they'd be like, come on, you can do it. Keep your splits. Go, go, go. That's what they're like. They're both a witness of how to run the race well because they finished, and they're also a spectating cheerleader who are telling us, run well, run well. I think in that way we could see that both pictures help us see that we have in front of us not only an example, but an encouraging group of people who are telling us, run our race well, finish to the very end. So it's a relay race. We're not individuals. The first group has already made it, and now we have to take our baton and run our race and do our part. Those are the three things to remember. Remember that you are Running and going to get weak, but when you're weak, you're strong. Remember that you're a child, and so you're not always going to understand the difficulties. Remember that this is a relay race. It's a team race. Fourth and final rule now. This is moving on. This is kind of a complicated outline structure, so hopefully we're following here. First thing we said was we need to remember the rule to pace ourselves. Second thing we said was we need to remember to lay aside the weights and the sins. And then we need to remember three things. The last rule of the race is the most important. It's look to Jesus. Did you see that in verse 2? Run your race with endurance, looking to Jesus. The word look here says not just to take a look, but it actually means to look and look at nothing else. To look away from everything and gaze and stare as if that's the only thing that you can see. Which means that all these other things, we might remember that there is a crowd of witnesses and examples that have gone before us, but we're not looking to them. There might be hurdles and opposition in front of us that we need to make sure we maneuver, but we still don't put our attention on them. And we certainly don't look at ourselves. Look down at your feet You won't know where you're going. We look to Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus Christ because we learn that we're actually running behind Jesus. In this wonderful picture of the idea that the the baton has been passed, I think the right way to understand the way the whole Bible fits together is that the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, All of these heroes of chapter 11, they ran their race, they passed their baton, and they didn't give it to us. They gave it to Jesus Christ. This is the way the whole flow of Hebrews 11 works. All of these people were commended by their faith, verse 39 of chapter 11, and then chapter 12, therefore, we're going to run our race. Why? Because Jesus already finished his. Do you see that? Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Those two words put together means that he started the race. He is the author, the beginner of the race. He created the race. It's like his race. It's called Jesus' race. Christians, we follow Jesus. 
And he already ran it and completed his leg of the race. And then now he hands the baton to us. Now this is the wonderful thing here. It says that he didn't just start the race and run it with us. It says that he is the perfecter of our faith as we run this race. And this is the best image of them all this morning. So if you're sleeping, if you're not paying attention, here's the time to pay attention. Jesus Christ, as he took the second leg of that baton, he got such a huge lead. Like he ran so fast and so hard and through all the obstacles that you and I, when we get the baton, we have zero chance of losing the race. That's how wonderfully encouraging the Jesus leg of the race is. So look behind Jesus. Look that he has already run and that you're now getting the baton and you could break your leg, you could fall down, you could get tripped up, your sin could entangle you, you could wear weights, it won't help you, but you could wear them, you'll finish your race because he already finished it. He so blew the race out of the water. Like the lead is just, he lapped the dudes. And there's no chance of us losing this race now. So now that we get our baton, all we have to do is just finish the race. Just finish. Run with endurance and finish the race for when Christ returns, restores the world, and brings all of us home. Pioneer, author, captain, perfecter, look at Jesus and see that he has seated down at the right hand of the Father. That means he's done. He's done his leg, and he's run his race. The other thing we need to see when we look at Jesus, we need to look and see that Jesus did not just finish his race, but he ran the hardest leg of the race. When Jesus got his turn with the baton, Jesus ran the most difficult part so that you and I wouldn't have to. The greatest of obstacles the greatest of struggles. And he went and did that so perfectly and so amazingly that you and I could run our race and it would not be as challenging. Challenging, yes, but in comparison to Jesus, not nearly. We find this very plainly from verse 3. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How will you be able to run your race well? When you consider that Jesus has already endured the greatest hostility against sinners, that would lead you to not being weary or faint-hearted because you would give up if you knew that you were going to lose. I'm just going to lose. I've already lost. You would give up if you knew that the obstacles ahead of you are just too much to overcome. No, he already did those. The big ones, the hard ones, the huge obstacles. He already did it. So now be encouraged that he endured great hostility from sinful men. He endured, as verse 2 says, the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross despising its shame. When you look to Jesus, I want you to see that Jesus was crushed and killed so that we as children could now live. When you look to Jesus, you should see that Jesus lost his relationship with his heavenly Father so that in his suffering, as he is abandoned, we would be accepted. That in our suffering, God is loving and accepting us. Jesus suffered for us so that we can now suffer for him. Jesus was seeking us 
in his suffering so that we can now seek him in our suffering? Or best of all, Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath in his suffering so that we would not taste a single drop. When you read in chapter 12 that he only disciplines his sons and daughters, that means he never disciplines in wrath. He's the perfect father whose wrath has been satisfied and therefore any discipline that would come to you is a loving discipline, a hundred percent pure love. All wrath was received on Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you see why looking to Jesus helps you run your race when you realize that he has already won for us, defeated and accomplished the hardest leg of the race? He did it by despising the shame. What an interesting phrase, thinking very little of the shame that he experienced. Thinking of it as it's nothing. Friends, are you going to run like Jesus? The only way he could run was, it says, by the joy that was set before him, which has led all kinds of people to ask, what joy? What was the joy set before Jesus that he could have on the other side of a bloody cross? And there's lots of different answers. The joy of accomplishing the Father's will, the joy of being perfectly obedient, even obedient to the death and death on a cross. But there's also the joy of the relationship with you that he didn't have on that other side of the cross. The joy of knowing that through the cross, there's salvation. The joy of knowing that the world would be renewed. Friends, that's the fuel that kept Jesus going, and it's the fuel that keeps us going. The race is hard and long, but the the energy that you need, the fuel to keep you running, is if you see the joy on the other side of the finish line. The joy on the other side of the struggle and the pain. That even on this earthly life, in this earthly life, we will experience pains and struggles. But on the other side of those, even on the earth, we will experience the fruit of righteousness and holiness and the joy of sanctification. And ultimately, we will experience the joy of being with Jesus forever. Friends, are you running the race? And if so, are you running it well? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning for Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We want to thank you that he has built up the biggest lead in race history and that we cannot lose and that we do not have to fear your discipline as you being angry with us and hating us. But we can receive your discipline as sons and daughters and as a gift of your love because you care for us. Father, what wonderful words. We want to thank you for them, and we want to ask now that you'd help us to believe them and cherish them. In Jesus' name, amen.